Y'all, welcome to RUF. Uh, it's good to be here and good to see you, especially on Halloween night. Um, I know there's, uh, parking is an issue. Uh, I know we've got a lot of midterms going on. People have asked me what my costume is. I had a couple of people ask me if I was a woman. No. <laughs> Though fair. Uh, <laughs> this is a mullet wig. Mullets were a thing in the 90s. Uh, Billy Ray Cyrus wore one. This is a tuxedo t-shirt. I'm a sixth-generation Alabamian. I'm just, just being me. <laughs> um, but seriously, I'm going to throw a quick plug in for Halloween. One, uh, Halloween takes its name from Hallow's Eve. Hallow's being uh, for the hallowed or saints. And it's really, I know there's pagan influences in it, but there is with Christmas and Christmas trees too, if you think about it. But, um, but Halloween... Um, is a celebration of God's people's victory over death and mocking death and saying that Jesus wins in the end. So there's some good stuff in that, right? Two, it's a great way to get to know your neighbors and get to celebrate and have fun with people that may be other than Christian. Uh, I was out trick-or-treating with my kids earlier tonight. A lot of those people on our street I don't talk to on a regular basis. We just kind of come and go in a neighborhood. Man, Halloween is a great way to see them, talk to them, do something fun with them. Uh, so I just want to put it before you is it's not a terrible thing. People do take it too far and do, do take it to excess, especially if you go to Franklin Street, you might see some of that. But just don't do that. <laughs> Partake of it and enjoy it as a good thing that it is. Um, Christmas, if you don't know, in the like 15th century was banned in England because it was a big drinking holiday. I mean, nobody treats it like that anymore. So... Take back Halloween. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> that was a joke at the end. <laughs> anyway, we're going through uh, the book of Psalms this semester. Obviously, we can't do all the Psalms. There's 150 of those things. But uh, we are doing some. And I think one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is it, they're songs and they're worship songs. And like any really good song that you listen to, like especially if you're saying listen to like love songs or breakup songs where someone is articulating what you're feeling way better than you could ever say it yourself and doing it in a more clever way, right? The Psalms do something like that where God is giving us words to, to express our experience of living life with Him. And they're words that we would maybe never come up on our own, but they're good words and they're true to our experience at the same time. And so I'm trying to pick psalms that go along with that. And I think that tonight is actually one of those as well. So this is Psalm 73. I'm going to read it here and then pray for us. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost uh, stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we do pray that you would be with us through these words tonight. Lord Jesus, that you would make them real and true. And Lord, that they would help us to express things that maybe we wouldn't even say to ourselves, but that are there and hidden. Lord, be with us in that. Help us to deal with ourselves and deal with you. And Lord, help us to know your grace and your love, that you hold our hand continually, that you don't let us go, that you abide with us even when we run from you. God, be with us in that. Guide us in it and give us what we need to know and enjoy you forever. In your name we pray. Amen. You ever feel like you're doing all the right things, but you just can't get ahead? When I uh, graduated from high school, I started off in college, and I knew from the get-go I was not a STEM person, like science, technology, engineering, math, like that was not my forte. But I'd taken calculus in high school, and I'd, I'd made a B in it, that was fine. I was going to go into college and knock it out my first semester and be done with the gen eds. And so I jumped into this calculus class, and immediately I know I'm, I'm over my head. Like, this is going to rock me. And it was too late when I realized that to <laughs> drop the class. <laughs> and so I'm stuck in this thing, and I'm, I'm on the ride, and I can't get off. And pretty quickly, I'm, I fail my first quiz real hard. And I start studying, like, 25-plus hours for every test and every quiz. I go to the office hours every day. I'm, like, sitting in, in the office with my professor doing math problems with him. And I hire a tutor. Like, I do everything that I can, and it's not working at all. But next to me in class was this guy named Sharja. And Sharja would come in every day, and as soon as the attendance roll passed by, he would just kind of write his name, and like clockwork, put his head down and go to sleep. Like, I mean, and not like a fake sleep, or like, I don't want to be here sleep, like a hard sleep. <laughs> like, drooling sleep. Sharja, though was crushing calculus, like killing it. He slept through every single class. I never saw the guy make less than a 95. Like just owned calculus. And I'm sitting there bombing this class, never making higher than a 45. And this guy who's literally, I never made higher than a 45 in that entire class. (laughs) It was the hardest I've worked in any class in my life. In my life, y'all. And I never made higher than a 45. And Sharjah, I'm not sure, made lower than a 95, like the whole semester. I didn't see all of his grades, but he killed it. 
And I had so much envy for him. I'd always been like one of the smarter people in my classes. And then here's this guy who's sleeping in class and he's destroying me. Destroying me. And I felt so much envy. It was crushing. You ever feel like you're doing all the things you can and you still can't get ahead? Does it ever feel like to you that you can kind of say to yourself, you know, as far as I can tell, I'm, to the best of my abilities, I'm doing what's right. I'm living wisely. And yet things aren't like I thought they would be. Like, I'm single, and I wonder if I could be having as much fun as I maybe could be. I could probably have more friends than I have right now. Uh, I look around, I, I look on social media, and I see you know, people look like they're having this insane fun, crazy time, and I'm doing the best that I can, and I think I'm, I'm living life as well as I can. I don't feel like I'm getting ahead. And I worry that the reason that's so is because I am trying to do the right thing. Like the very thing that I know is right is what's keeping me from getting what I most desire. And maybe I would never say this out loud, but I feel that way and I'm mad at you, God. I'm mad at you. And I'm mad that you're not giving me what I want you to give me. Look, from where you're standing and from what you can see, there may be people who are getting what they want and who are leading other people to do wrong. And from where you're standing, it's like they're profiting from that. And you know you're not perfect, but you're doing your best and you can't see how to make any traction in life. Do you ever feel that way? Like, isn't it amazing that this book that gets thrown under the bus all the time for being irrelevant or about a bunch of rules is actually giving you the words to say things that you would probably not even ever say out loud to yourself, let alone to another person? Look, y'all, the psalm that we just read is actually someone who's really wrestling with reality and wrestling with those things that you're feeling too. So now I just want to walk through this person's experience and see how they're wrestling helps us understand the way that we wrestle also so that we can have the eyes to see reality. So now I want to look at two things in this story. I want to ask, what is it like to see poorly? And what's it like to see well? What's it like to see poorly and what's it like to see well? I'm going to take this wig off. (laughs) I just don't think you can take me seriously with that. (laughs) But first, what's it like to see poorly? Look at verses uh, 2 through 3 here. This guy is really struggling. He says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He is close to just punting this whole thing and just running from God. And just running into like really disastrous sin. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He sees people who are doing things that are clearly bad and are not struggling. And he's just jealous of them. Because it seems like they get to do whatever they want to do and there's zero consequences. Y'all, this is somebody in the Bible being very frank and saying, you know, there are times in my life when I see these people and I want to be wicked like they are. I want to be them. Some of you really understand where this guy's coming from. Some of you guys see other guys on campus who are hooking up and using people and bragging about it. And their stock just seems to keep rising. And there just doesn't seem to be any consequences for them in that. 
And there's a part of you that wishes that that were you. Or you see friends of yours who are not like randomly hooking up but are dating in like a legitimate relationship and they're sleeping together. And you're in a relationship and you're saying no to that. And yet there's a part of you that thinks, you know, they are being very adult. And they seem to really enjoy themselves and they don't look like they're very guilty about this. They look pretty happy about it. Am I missing on something here? Like, when I'm 30, am I going to be seething with regret? I didn't do that. Or going even lower, for some of you you ladies, it can be like, you have friends who slept with guys to ensure that they stay around. Because there's not a lot of guys at Chapel Hill. And especially not a lot of super dateable guys. And you see them sleep with these guys, and you're like, should I do that to ensure that this guy sticks around for me? Because it seems like they're getting what they want. And Jesus, I know you're there, but you're not like, you're not giving me what this guy could give me. Like someone to be my friend and do life with me. <coughs> to some of us, it just looks like what God forbids is the way that the people around us are living their best life now. And man, that just gets under our skin, doesn't it? And can you follow Jesus and live that kind of lifestyle? Like, not saying make mistakes, but consistently live that kind of lifestyle. No. Like, that's hypocrisy. But hypocrisy doesn't come out of nowhere. It's got to start somewhere. And usually where it starts is here with envy. Imagine yourself, if you were that other person, and wanting to be them. What's so poisonous about envy is that it blinds us to the good things that we do have. It makes us mad at God because we don't have what others have and we think that that's what we most need, right? Like, I don't see any of the good things that I have. I don't see how healthy I am. I don't see that I'm at this amazing school. I don't see that I'm in this time of life where, like, I'm surrounded by people that would actually be my friend. All I can see is what I don't have. All I can see is what they do have. And we can say to ourselves, just like this guy, surely in vain... Have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence? All day long, Jesus, I've been afflicted. Look, what's at the root of this envy? At the root is what the Bible calls idolatry. Just treating good things that are not God as if they were God. I mean, in our culture, idolatry is more about the longings of our hearts than a little gold statue hidden in our closet. Where do we see idolatry here? Look at what this guy says the wicked have, but which he doesn't have and longs for. He says they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're comfortable, right? They threaten oppression, which means they're powerful. They're well-fed and they increase in riches, which means they're wealthy. Comfort, power, wealth. Look, if you've got a pulse, you're dealing with those idols right now. And your envy for people with those things is just a measure of how large those idols are in your heart. Do you know why none of us can stand those celebrity gossip magazines at the grocery store? You're going to walk it in at the checkout line. We, we can't stand them because they're petty and they're vain and they're self-centered. Do you know why we can't help but read them? And why that's a like, multi, multi-million dollar industry? It's because we kind of want to be them. We kind of want to be minor celebrities, even if we just be like an insta-famous. Like, we kind of like that. Because those people are beautiful and rich, and people pay attention to them. 
And sometimes it can feel like being beautiful and powerful and wealthy and well-liked at any cost is all that we can think about. I mean, do you ever agonize over how, much, how many people like your stuff on social media? Or how you're perceived online, like you kind of manage this brand? You ever resent the fact that other people get rewarded with more likes because they show more skin? Or for pushing the envelope with their language or the way they party? Of course you do. Like, I do too. This guy in the Bible does. Look, there's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost. And it's nothing compared to the blessing and the joy of knowing Him and being redeemed by Him. And yet, when we actually do feel that cost, it can feel like it just knocks us sideways and messes with us. And we envy people and resent them. And we kind of want to be them. Even when we know what they're doing is wrong because it can feel like I'm doing all the right things. I'm not getting any traction in the stuff that I really want. One of my professors in seminary, my, my preaching professor actually, told, used to tell this story about another seminary couple. I think must have graduated in like the 90s or something like that. But uh, the, the husband in this was a seminary student. His wife uh, worked full-time to pay the bills and do rent and cover groceries and actually pay for his school. And her job was at this major pharmaceutical company as this quality control inspector. And one day there's this large order of syringes that this machine had produced, and somehow there's this kind of faulty procedure that wasn't followed, and all these syringes, which are supposed to be sent to people, get, get contaminated. And they're not supposed to be able to be used anymore. And her job as this quality control person is to say, no to the syringes, we need to go back and make some more. But the thing is, this was a really large batch, and companies hate to lose money. And her boss approaches her and says, you know, I need you to sign off on these things so that we can ship them out and make a profit on this. And she said, no. And finally, the president of the company comes to her, and he tells her the same thing, and he gives her the weekend to think about it. I mean, she can either go with the values of this company, or she can go with the values of just integrity and what Jesus calls her to. And she thought about it over the weekend, that, you know, if I say no to these people, I could lose my job. How will my husband go to seminary? How will we pay for rent? How will we buy groceries? There was a cost. She says no, and she's fired. They just let her go so that they can make a profit in this. And ultimately, she gets her job back. Or not, she doesn't get that job back, but she gets another job back. But she didn't know that that would happen. She didn't know how that was going to happen or how the bills were going to get paid. Look, she simply had to do the right thing. She had to walk by faith and not by sight. She had to move into those things and not know. And it could feel like even though she was doing the right thing and getting punished for it, she still got to do it. How do we have that? How do we get that? We have to have the right way of seeing things. Look at verses 16 through 17 here. This guy says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Look, when people seem big and God seems small, how do you get the right perspective to deal with that struggle? What's this guy say? Go to a worship service and deal with the things of utmost reality. Like, we never say, leave your problems at the door because we actually want you to bring your problems in so that God can deal with them with you. 
Look, we need to know that there is a God who is almighty and that people are not that. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that we're all very young and we've not seen the consequences of all our decisions played out. And that for some of us down the line, we're going to feel the consequences of decisions later. Maybe not now, but later. Even if we don't see that, God is the ultimate judge of our lives. And people are not. And man, nothing gives us that kind of perspective like stepping into a worship service. I mean, do you see that singing songs that are centered on Jesus, praying prayers that are about God's work in the world, having someone open the Bible to you and explain to you what it means about who God is and what He's done, is actually waking you up to reality? I mean, when you sing a song like Abide With Me, that says, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless, ills have no weight and tears no bitterness, where is death sting, where grave thy victory, I triumph still, abide with me. When you sing a song like that, you're really saying something huge about your life, and about who God is and what He does. At the heart of our worship, is the gospel. It's the cross. And it's like this good, like super honest friend. Have you ever had a friend like this where you love them and you know they love you, but you also know that this person can say really hard things to you? Like really hard things to you? I mean, the cross is there and it puts its arm around us and it says, you are so bad that God had to die for you. Like if you are arrogant... And you are mean. Like the cross it like, will say hard things to you. Because it's incredibly humbling to know that I'm so bad that God himself had to die <laughs> to make me right with him. It says hard things to us. And yet it's like this incredibly kind friend that in saying that puts his arm around you and says, and you're so loved that God did it anyway. Like you're so precious and beloved that God would become nothing and be crushed so that you could know Him and enjoy Him and so that He could know and enjoy you. Look, if you're looking around in despair at what everybody else has and what you don't have, the cross lifts you up. Our culture says you need money and beauty and wealth to be significant and worthy of love. The cross says you need one thing. Jesus Christ. That if you have nothing, and you have Jesus, like God made flesh, then you are wealthier and more significant than if you owned the whole world and did not have Him. And all of us need to be reminded of what's true. Like, we get shaped by all this stuff out here. We need to be reminded by that in worship. For some of us, it's when you come in here, it's like waking up from a nightmare into reality and being like, yes, like, this is how it actually is. Thank you. For others of us, it can actually puncture our illusions and show us that we're in way more spiritual danger than we thought. I mean, if you see yourself in this psalm, then there is a chance to repent here, right? Because worship is more than just a bunch of feel-good songs. It's about drawing back the veil of reality and peeking into what God is actually doing and who we actually are. It's about dealing with the fact that we deserve all God's wrath for our sin, and yet He's taken that wrath upon Himself because he loves us. Look, in this, it's, the turning point is, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my hand. You hold. You God. You will receive. That's so comforting to me. To know that I'm going to like push against God. 
I'm going to throw temper tantrums with God. I'm going to look at other people and I'm going to say, I wish I was that guy over there. And God's going to hold on to you and love you and care for you and guide you in through that. Look, most of the problems in the Christian life is not because God isn't there or God isn't for you. Most of our problems are that we don't see His work as setting ourselves free from our obsessions with ourselves. Setting ourselves free from pursuing popularity and pleasure and power. Have you ever thought that that might be God's main work in your life, to free you from those kind of idols? Look, that in a way that is both mystical and beautiful, He's holding on to you, guiding you. Look, your biggest problem is not that you're lazy or anxious or lonely or single. Your biggest problem if you're a Christian is that you don't know how beloved you are. That you don't know that you belong to Jesus. And that He holds you and cares for you and walks with you through life. That He abides with you even when you don't abide with Him. You don't don't understand how deep God's love for His people is. And yet the reality, the good news, is that He does this while you're still a sinner and you don't understand. And He gives Himself for you. That we don't change for His love, but His love given to us actually changes us. It sets us free. It's the place where we can take our despair, we can take our envy, our meanness, our pride. The bad things we've done, the good things we didn't do. And God gives us Himself. And if that's enough for Him, why isn't it enough for us? So I want to end with this. There's a guy named Charles Spurgeon who's this great Reformed Baptist preacher who lived in London about 100, 120 years ago. And he's out in the town one day in one of the poorest sections visiting people. And he said that he passed by this window kind of on uh, floor level. And he looks through this window as he's walking down the street and he sees this poor old woman sitting in her apartment. And it's a cold day. And all she has in this little apartment is a little table and a little chair and a single coal and a fire. It's like a scene from a Dickens novel, right? And she's sitting there about to eat this small loaf of bread for her whole meal. And he's, he's walking by, he looks in, and Spurgeon hears her as she begins to say grace. And her prayer was, all this? Like, I get this little table and this little chair... And this little loaf of bread and this tiny coal and this fire on this cold day, I get all this and Jesus too. I get all this and Jesus too. You know, you can have the whole world and not have Jesus and it's never going to be enough for you. You can have a tiny table and a tiny chair and a little piece of coal on a cold day and you can have Jesus and it'll be like you have the whole world. God is enough. It's what we most need. It's what we most desire. It's what we most long for. And so it's an offer to you in the gospel in Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you don't just tell us to get with the program. That you don't just give us a bunch of things to do or prayers to pray. But God, you give us yourself. And you give us um, your love for free. That you don't ask us to change first before we get that love. But Lord, you give us that love and then you transform us through it. Lord, help us to believe that, to rest in it, to live out of that, to follow you in it, and to walk with joy. In your name we pray. Amen.